Welcome to Shades Midweek, episode 77. My name is John Mark DeRoe. I'm here with hosts Brad Brown and Jonathan Hayes. If you've never listened to Shades Midweek before, this is a podcast about theology, culture, and all things Shades. And we are bringing this episode to you from the Four Stream studio here on Oxmoor Road. What's up, guys? I was wondering, like, how much more information how, how, is there to get? How deep do you want me to go with this thing? <laughs> I can keep going if you want me to. I'm sitting Our here, for office the first phone time. number is two zero five four eight zero. I'm currently wearing a Beach Boys T-shirt. I am drinking. It is seventy two degrees outside. Out of an aluminum Part- can for the first time in my life. Partly cloudy. Traffic I-60. on traffic on two eighty is at a standstill. <laughs> we have we have turned into a traffic radio announcement here. No. Well, guys, no, I actually uh, had an interesting experience a little bit earlier this week. Do tell. Um, so I don't remember if it was our last episode. I don't remember which one it was. Uh, but we talked about Ed Hart. Good old Ed Hart, who Ed. has emailed in before. Yep. Uh, we have He's all... a part of the email corridor. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we've all grown to know and love Ed. But we talked about how Ed is a bit of a renaissance man uh, because, you know, what are the things y'all are aware of that he does that make you think he's a Renaissance man? He paints. He paints. He has a Instagram with latte art, mm-hmm. all yes. exclusively. <laughs> um, does he play an instrument? What he is does. it? He loves music. Yeah. He, he talks about music What's a he lot. Play? Big Viol- music, violin, listener. or something. All these different things. Yes, y'all are correct on all accounts. But there's some other things. He does oh. some woodworking. Oh, 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 goodness! Listen. Recipes. I think he has some recipes oh, on his. Listen, I went. on his website. I, I had the opportunity to go to Ed Hart's uh, house this past week because uh, you are correct. He does do woodworking. He doesn't just do woodworking, though. He designs plans for woodworking projects and sells them. And I went oh, to his wow. house because I do not do that. Um, I do woodworking, but I don't, I don't design stuff. And I needed his help designing something, which meant he took me down to his basement where all of his renaissanciness unfolds. Oh, that's lovely. Guys, we have only hit the tip of the iceberg. Wow, what 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 are we missing? I, I took pictures and I wish I'd taken more. So this is the table where the model airplane is oh, currently wow. being built. Listeners, these, do you see that? These are tables that he's building and selling on the internet. And this is by his reading chair where his uh, movie authentic Aragorn working pipe uh, sits you know, for deep thinking. And this, this is what put it over the top for me. Do y'all know what this is? This is the soap that he's making. Oh, that he is creating his own brand of soap with multiple scents to sell. Incredible. And and so, yeah, yeah. I don't know that I've ever met more of a Renaissance man. Wow. We need to have Ed Ed Hart. I think so. I think we can definitely have. If there's any sample soap, that you'd be willing to part with. Oh, oh, we I have sample soap at my house. Man. I do lavender. Yeah. One thing I, I was thinking about Whole Foods, but I never get it. <laughs> one thing I was thinking about when you were showing those pictures on your phone is that one day in this studio when we get it really nice in here and in then we get, we get a couple of cameras in here, we record it live, so then it's audio and video, then we get our TV up here on the wall that we can airplay to, then mm-hmm. we could airplay the pictures and then people could see it. On the video portion on YouTube, we're gonna become a I've video podcast dreams. on YouTube. I've got big dreams. Well, not video yes. exclusively; it would still be audio form. But if you wanted to watch the video, you could. We definitely have to make it look better in here first. Yeah, we've <laughs> got to do some updates. But 
It's possible. Oh, yeah. well, speaking of Ed belonging to the email quarter, yes. how about we head down to the email quarter? All right, we've got another faithful email corridor person. Should we should participant call these member? Participant. Yeah. Um, Dale, good. Dale, resident. Dale Anton. Remember Dale? Dale, who who y'all questioned whether or not Dale was a real person. It's true. You can never be too sure. Well, Dale has written in before. He's from Huntsville, I believe, or North yes. Alabama, uh, Madison, maybe. I, I can't. I can't remember the exact town, but I, I um, believe he attends our sister EFCA church yes. up there. And he is a faithful listener of Shades Midweek, and he wrote in this week, so I wanted to read this real quick. Uh, subject is I'm not a bot, so we're just getting right <laughs> to the point right there. <laughs> Good morning. Well, it is morning as I write this. It's also morning as we read this. If you notice our voices being deeper, but as you read this, you may substitute the greeting of the appropriate time of day. I don't want to cause you any stress related to the greeting I have used. Maybe I should have just used the salutation greetings. In hindsight, that makes far more sense, so I'm going to start over. Greetings! I very much enjoyed the latest edition of Midweek. The Meet a Member episodes are so interesting and informative. Not in a lurker voyeuristic sense, but more like this is the church. I'm, I guess he's talking about Matthias's episode that, that was the last Meet a Member right, that we right, did. Right. Mm. Um, you show the human side or the actual church at Shades through the casual fun and informative interviews. And as you already know, the people are the church. The building is merely a location where the gathered church meets. I think I'm allowed to consider myself the midweek fan club president or king of the North Alabama chapter. I hope that's not presumptuous. Enjoy the day. P.S. I am a real boy. Wow. Thank you, Dale. Uh, Yes, you could totally uh, take up the mantle of Midweek Fan Club, uh, president of the North Alabama chapter. I I mean, I think think King's appropriate. We have a queen. I'm I'm still not convinced that he's not a bot. (laughs) Brad, what would it take for you now? I don't know, but that that title seems like something a bot would say. You really think a bot has that kind of humor in the in the beginning there with the whole salutations? Listen, I don't know. I've seen what Elon Musk is capable of. I, I have seen artificial intelligence write Nirvana songs, so and I've I've seen The Matrix, so yeah. Well, Dale, <laughs> that makes apparently, you an on. apparently you're just going to have to come be a guest on the show and defend yourself live That's and right. in person. Dale, in thank person. you for writing Dale, in. Thank I you for listening. You. Embodied presence. Oh, my thank word. you for the support. Let us know how the North Alabama chapter is going. Uh, maybe you could recruit <laughs> some more listeners up there to listen to the show. And uh, if we get enough listeners, maybe we'll do a uh, remote show. <laughs> I'm just Our first I could, live I'm making episode. all these promises. That's a definite possibility. Uh, in North Alabama. Oh my! Yeah, word. maybe that. That'd maybe be great. We could do that. That could be cool. Well, let's move to something we can deliver on. Okay. How, how about an album of the week? James album of the week. All right, James album of the week. Man, I'm really excited. Do you guys like the band The Killers? Oh yeah, I'm big yes. Killers fan. I mean. I, I said that very quickly. <laughs> no, go go for it. No, all I was I, I was I, wondering. I don't listen to them like all the time and all of that, but like when the Killers first came out, loved their sound. It was very unique to me, and uh, and yes, have followed them. Yeah, but but they're not like making my top like 
three bands of all time okay. or something like yeah. that. But yeah, I enjoy the killers. Mm-hmm. I enjoy the killers. Yeah, me too. Well, I think it's important to get some context uh, with the killers and in, in terms of their sound um, real quick. You know, they, you guys remember their first like big singles, like uh, Mr. Brightside mm-hmm. and uh, somebody, somebody told, told me, me. Uh, those were a couple of their big singles. All these things that I've done, I think, was the other big single. They were like a really big band when they first hit. I mean, you're talking about an album that comes out. It's kind of their first official release, and it just blows up. I mean, they're playing it on pop radio. Their videos are getting played when videos were still played uh, on, I guess, probably MTV2 by that time. And um, so anyways, they were just a really important band, and they had some follow-up records. They you know, advance their sound a little bit. They kind of got real, as the bigger they got, the bigger venues they played. Therefore, some of their music, uh, I felt like was pushed into more of like an arena rock synth driven, just huge guitars, which their first album sounds like that. But, uh, sonically their first album is a little more drier. It's, uh, it's a little more raw sounding and not as put together as some of the albums they would put out. Well, I have some awesome news. They put out a record last Friday called Pressure Machine. I did not know this. That's exciting. And that is the album of the week, Pressure Machine by The Killers. It just came out. I listened to this album nonstop over the weekend. I've listened to it all week. It's one of my favorite albums that they've put out. Uh, probably since Battleborn, which I think came out in 2012. I haven't really been a fan of some of their the other releases that they've done in between now and then. Battleborn was 2012. I think so. I think you're that's right. just Holy off. Cow. That's just off the top of my head. No, you don't need to look it up. But yeah, it's been a minute since Battleborn, and so. But here's the thing about this album that I really like a lot, and I'll, it's a concept album. Um, what do you mean by that? A concept album, kind of like Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon or Tommy the Who. Um, basically an album that kind of, they, they come up with this concept where in this album in particular, last year Brandon Flowers, the lead singer, wrote a bunch of poetry and the band decided instead of making a typical Killers record, they would kind of use this thread of poetry and create all these songs about his childhood and about him growing up and reflecting on growing up in Utah out West. And so, yeah, Brandon flowers, I think is a Mormon. Yeah. As far as I, yeah, there's a clip on YouTube that you can watch where he's on a TV show and Richard Dawkins comes on the show and then, attacks his Mormon beliefs, and then the segment ends. So Brandon yeah. Flowers doesn't even get a chance to respond. It's really it's awkward. It's crazy. It's like a late-night show. It's like a late-night show. I think it's uh, maybe like an English show. It's like a panel-type show where they have rotating panel yes. members that come on at different times. So the guy's like, hey, we got Brandon Flowers here. And then Dawkins just goes off on him on this whole thing. And then the host is like, well, Brandon, it's time for you to go back and get prepared to play. And Richard Dawkins is like, oh, my goodness, I'm oh, so sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't realize. <laughs> didn't realize that was a two-minute segment there. Yeah. It's very awkward. But, yes, he is He is Mormon. I, I believe he still is. Now, I don't know. I don't know a ton about Mormonism. Maybe you guys can jump in. I, I oh, do. if only there was someone in the room that does. <laughs> I may or may not know a thing or two. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I know that there are, just like within Christianity, there are different, probably, layers. There's different groups, maybe some 
are more mainline and believe like everything. I don't, I don't know where he lands on that is all I'm trying to say. I don't know if he's like, I'm a progressive Mormon or I'm a conservative. I have no idea. I don't know what that we'll get him on the show so he can clarify. But, um, he does have like religious undertones in a lot of his music. And so that definitely shows up on this album. But what one thing they do real quick, I know I'm going on for long, but I feel like this album is pretty important. Um, one thing they do is they recorded all these songs out of these poems. And then they went to the town in Utah where he grew up and they did all these audio like field recordings and they interviewed people in the town uh, just different stories, and they use that as as a part of the entire album. So it almost feels like you're listening to an audio book. So uh, here's an example of that. This is a just song called "The Getting By." Small town feeling, and just live in this small town. And like my kids ride dirt bikes and motorcycles, and they just go across the street in the field and ride. I can watch them off my front porch. Um, my one boy's into shed horn hunting, so he'll take off and go park his truck out west and be is. gone all day. And they, the mountains are just in our backyard. <laughs> That's the nice part about it. The song's called "The Getting By." It's like a working class. It's like a working class. When I get up, she swears that she don't. Says that I'm as quiet as a mouse This song's actually about his dad I comb my hair and throw some water on my face And back out of the stillness of our house Lately my patience isn't sure Nothing good seems to ever come From all this work No matter how hard I try Yeah, his voice I know So So good You know I believe In the sun I ain't no backslider I ain't no backslider (laughs) Anyways, uh, the album is beautiful It, it, it's Musically, it it goes from like kind of that more almost country inspired side of the Killers and Brandon Flowers. They still have some of their regular more um, what like kind of rockin' synth stuff. Like I'll fast forward to a song here. In this quiet town, this is almost like Americana rock, like John Mellon Camp or something. Yeah, it's just about a lot of it's like about small town life, living out west, um, working class people. It's that whole vibe, um, and I actually think it pairs really well with Andy Squire's album. If I was gonna be like, I'm gonna do a double feature wow. of two albums, it would be the Andy Squire's record and then the Killers' Pressure Machine. So I'm in love with it. Please write in and let me know. I, there were a couple of people from Shades that saw me post it on Instagram, and they were. They were messaging me back and forth saying how much they enjoyed it. So, wow. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Yep. Well, just so everybody knows, because I know this is important and it's bothering everyone. Shed horn hunting. Oh, great. Is, you know. Yeah. So uh, deer, elk, uh, you know, the, the bucks shed their antlers each year. Ah. 
So shed horn hunting is when you go out looking for antlers that have been shed. Oh. It's not like hunting to go kill something. It's like it's like seashell hunting. But you're looking for antlers. It sounds fun. I mean <laughs> There you go. <laughs> clearly we should have known that. We are big hunters here at Shades Midweek. Yeah. Um, you can just look at us and tell that we like to cover ourselves with deer urine, get up in a tree stand at four AM and just hang out all day long waiting for that perfect shot to happen. I, I actually did a lot right? of hunting before I moved to Birmingham. So, But I was from very rural South Georgia. So, Right. Well, I was from rural was a, Alabama, and my brothers went hunting, and I never did. I just had no interest whatsoever. I was going to say, that was a very apt description, John Mark. <laughs> That's just me picking up on what little things people say about hunting. So, And it has started raining, as is almost every day in Alabama. It just randomly starts to rain here for the last... Since like it's good April, for, it's good for my grass though. That's right. I'm officially becoming a middle-aged man. Well, good for the lawn though. <laughs> it's good for the grass. I'm just gonna go ahead and start yeah, this let's, because let's it, gonna, it takes gonna so long. That water bill. Let's quit talking about your grass and let's talk about a buck. You yeah. got a buck for us, Brad? I do. We're just gonna start talking over this because it takes so long. <laughs> it's so to long. get to the Maybe end. Maybe we should shorten it up. Welcome to Bradford's Book Club. This week, I have a book that I have not completely finished, but I'm almost there, Jonathan. I don't know why the call out. You said I never finish a book like four episodes ago or something. I did not say you never no. finish a book. I did not say that. I we will, know, go, we will go back and listen. I don't know the exact I will qu- defend myself. I don't know the exact quote, but I know the spirit of it. Oh, my word. And it was hateful. So... <laughs> Today, I am excited about the book that I will be recommending. It is a book that has been widely recommended to me. It is a book titled, The Body Keeps the Score. Have you guys heard about this book? I feel like you've talked about this before. I have talked about it, (laughs) yes. The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma by Bessel van der Kolk. He was a, that, a, that's a name. professor of psychiatry at Boston University, I believe. I'll just read a little bit from the back cover to give you a taste. Trauma is a fact. This is going to get really intense, by the way. Trauma is a fact of life. Veterans and their families deal with the painful aftermath of combat. One in five Americans has been molested. One in four grew up with alcoholics. One in three couples have engaged in physical violence. And those statistics are pretty striking. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, one of the world's foremost experts on trauma, has spent over three decades working with survivors. And the body keeps the score. He uses recent scientific advances to show how trauma literally reshapes both body and brain. Compromising sufferers' capacities for pleasure, engagement, self-control, and trust. He explores innovative treatments from neurofeedback and meditation to sports, drama, and yoga that offer new paths to recovery by activating the brain's natural neuroplasticity. Based on Dr. Vanderkolk's own research and that of other leading specialists, The Body Keeps the Score exposes the tremendous power of our relationships both to hurt and to heal and offers new hope for reclaiming lives. So as I've entered into the world of counseling and psychology, this book has been widely 
recommended to me and everybody that I've talked to kind of across the discipline across the discipline has praised it. it was released in 2014 and I think it was a game changer in understanding trauma and how we heal from trauma so check it out it is a, a book that is academic in a sense but I think he writes in a way that's also very accessible and engaging so the body keeps the score by Vessel Vanderkolk. Check it out. Wow. One thing I wanted to mention off off that is for all of our listeners, especially if you're newer, uh, we did two episodes, a two part interview with Bo Armstead, who is a counselor and That's right. he's an elder here at Shades Valley. Um, he talked about EMDR therapy. He talked about trauma. Go listen to that. If that's uh, something that interests you that you want to know more about, go listen to those interviews because they are incredible. They're they're in our library. You can find those on Spotify and all that. Yes. Stuff. And a while ago, I asked Bo for some book recommendations, and this was the one book he said you have to read. Well, there so you there you have it. That's awesome. Mr. Armistead himself. All yeah. right. Well, uh, we have last week we prefaced this episode by saying that we had a big interview lined up, a big one, right? Yes. So, so what do we have? What's going on? Nobody's here right now, so I'm I'm a little confused. Very we confused. we actually we recorded the interview yesterday. Um, I'm being facetious. Yes, and didn't make our distinguished guests sit through all of our nonsense. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and I think I think we do the introduction like on the interview. So why don't we just yeah. Without any further ado, let's just play that interview for everybody. Well, we're really excited this week on Shades Made Week because I promised you last week we were going to have a, uh, a very special guest. You did. You made promises. Yes, I did. We promised a vice president. That's right. We didn't say which one, but we promised one. Yes. So, so I would like to introduce you to Kamala Harris. Everybody yeah. glad oh she came in today. No, no. We have with us... Colin Hansen. Colin Hansen, who serves as the vice president for content and editor in chief of editor in chief. I don't know. That just sounds amazing. I want to be a chief of some kind. Editor in chief of the Gospel Coalition. Colin, thank you for being here. Thank you, Jonathan. I actually have like hey. this little uh, this workup of a bio right here. So okay. right. you want to give the man his due? Yeah, yeah. Maybe I should just for those of you who don't know, and we if, if you don't know who Colin Hansen is, are you even an evangelical? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I, Colin, can you answer that? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell I'll tell you how I first learned of Colin. I was sitting at uh, the conference uh, together for the gospel. I don't know, maybe circa 2014. Mm -hmm. And Matt Chandler from the stage tells the story of how he first met Colin Hansen. (laughs) And I'm like, who is he talking about? And then Kevin DeYoung talks about him and how he janked his book title in order for his blog title and all this. I'm like, they all keep talking about this guy. Who is he? So I picked up the book, uh, Young Wrestles Reformed, and that was my first knowledge of Colin. And it was only later that I learned you had moved to Birmingham. That's true. That is true. So, well, to give the the full due here, he hosts the Gospel Bound podcast and has written and contributed to many books. Most recently, Rediscover Church: Why the Body of Christ is Essential. Um, and he is also uh, Gospel Bound, written Gospel Bound, living with resolute hope in an anxious age. I don't know why that would be relevant at all. <laughs> um, here at an MDiv at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which is oh, in Chicago, and free that church, is, uh, yeah, that's that right. is that is our denomination school. So. 
Welcome home, Colin. <laughs> Free church Welcome shout out. Home. That's right. Um, and he got an undergraduate degree in journalism and history from Northwestern University. He edited Our Secular Age, 10 Years of Reading and Applying Charles Taylor, uh, which has actually been a book on Bradford's book club. It's true. Uh, here. It is. We read that together as a staff. Oh, we that's did. encouraging. I thought you were going to say it was on his book like end table, and that is just <laughs> sat there for four years. No, we, we it's read. It's been a great coffee hole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We read through it together. I mean, we have lots of, of critical things to say. <laughs> no, it was That's an excellent book. Today. Oh. Yeah, we enjoyed it. I'm yeah. only responsible, though, for some of them since I only edited the book. Right. Well, so he, he, yes, yes. I've got that going for yes. me. He also edited the New City Catechism Devotional, among other books. He and his wife belong to Redeemer Community Church here in Birmingham, Alabama. And he is an adjunct professor at Beeson Divinity School, Minor Brad's alma mater, uh, where he also serves on the advisory board. So there is the full yes. write-up bio. Welcome, Colin. Thank so, you seriously for taking yeah, time to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. Today. Colin, to... how did you get to Birmingham? Because uh, you're not to, originally you get from to Birmingham. Birmingham. Right? I, don't, I don't sound like I'm from Birmingham. Um, not exactly. You uh, you get to Birmingham by marrying a Birmingham girl. That's how that <laughs> works. <laughs> so uh, we met in college. Uh, Lauren was one of the few people from around here who ended up going up to Chicago for college. Oh, and, okay. and I came over from South Dakota. She came up from Alabama. I was a sophomore. She was a freshman. I had a little bit of a home court advantage there. <laughs> and so we bonded over our mutual love of college football and of Jesus, ah. hopefully in the reverse order. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, now we, we hit it off, started dating shortly thereafter. We lived in Chicago for a number of years after we got married in 2003 to about 2011, lived outside of New York, but we're eager in light of, we didn't really know what I was going to be doing with my work. She didn't know what she was going to be doing, wanted to be a mom, be at home with kids. And so we wanted to be here in Alabama and we have not regretted it one day. I was about to ask. We love Birmingham. Yeah. yeah, Like having grown up in like South Dakota, Mm -hmm. you know, with the the major metropolises that are there. (laughs) I was wondering how you felt about the big city in the South. There are more, more people in the Birmingham Metro area than there are in the entire state of South Dakota. So, (laughs) so what college football team did you cheer for growing up? Uh, well, good question. It was several, several layers. Could be my parents' alma mater, South Dakota State University, who just had their heart ripped out in the championship game at the <laughs> FCS level this last year. Very sorry. Uh, or then it could be, hey, I'm a child of the 90s, so Nebraska Cornhuskers uh, back well, in the 90s. Yeah. Triple option. Mm. Yeah, that and option. Then, here you go, Tommy <laughs> Frazier, time. Lawrence yeah. Phillips, all those folks there. So then jumped forward to then at Northwestern. Then I picked up them, Big Ten champions in 2000, and, in 2000 my sophomore year and then uh i kept just lauren was so into college football and she was so into alabama i was about to say there's only one of two teams she was so into alabama and that year alabama was terrible and i gave her such a hard time about that (laughs) i I gave her so much grief they lost homecoming it was just atrocious i she almost didn't marry me because of that it was (laughs) she was so angry with me. She took that so seriously. <laughs> so, but then I eventually adopted the tide. And so now that's, we got season tickets and everything. Well, so I, I, I really hate to tell you, I'm sitting here completely. I don't have a dog in this fight, but uh, we have, we do have an Auburn grad right here and a lifelong <laughs> Auburn fan I over think here. We'll, we'll probably survive yeah. as long as we don't talk about it. That's right. true. Let's talk, yes. let's talk about what you and your wife, uh, the other thing y'all bonded over. We'll, we'll talk about Jesus. Yes. So, well, so Colin, uh, recently, Recently, um, we actually had the opportunity, uh, us as a staff, to go with you on a uh, civil rights tour 
here in Birmingham. I, I forget how I originally learned that you were leading those tours, but how long have you been doing that for? Uh, started actually just about three years ago. So I was invited by Matt Francisco, one of our pastors at Redeemer Community Church, to do a History of Birmingham talk uh, for, for our church. And the response was very encouraging. Tremendous response. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people in Birmingham, especially younger people, have a sense that there is a really interesting, maybe scary, kind of concerning history, but they just they don't know a lot of the details, and they don't really know where to go for that. So from there, wow, it just totally took off. I realized I could adapt the talk that I did because I, I do it in a kind of visual way, so I decided I could adapt that to an actual tour, and even in four hours, you can't, or three mm-hmm. hours, you can't cover everywhere in the city, but sure. you can cover some of the main areas that just allow you to to stand there and to see. And one of the major themes that I, I typically use is in Birmingham, people may be looking at the same things, but they don't see the same things, mm-hmm. um, depending on where you, where you come from, what your history is. And so I've just seen a tremendous response over three years of, of people, churches and medical ministries and campus ministries, and it's, it's kept me pretty busy and um and i get a chance to i get a chance to improve things every single time people ask good questions it helps that they often will ask the same questions so i know what to focus on (laughs) in there when i'm planning but uh yeah it's been it's been a pretty uh encouraging response last few years how many tours do you think you've led now oh at least a dozen or so i would say um, I mean, it keeps me going every every few months. There'll be somebody that jumps in, and it's it's really encouraging for because it's it's all word of mouth. I, right. It's not like I'm out there advertising my services as if this is a professional thing that I do. Just sort of a side thing because I love the city and I love the church, and and I want to be able to do what I can to help. So it really does spread. I, I can't remember probably Joel Busby. He would been it probably did yeah. that did mm-hmm. that through his his church and. And again, a number of other churches as well, and yep. other groups. Well, and our, our hope, actually, we've been talking a lot. Our hope is to uh, do another one with yeah, you that great. we can open up to our body uh, at, at, at large and have our, our body go on the tour. I mean, we wanted to do it as staff first just because we weren't sure it was any good. Um, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's smart. That's the way to What's do it. What's this guy going to say? Well, that when it comes to Birmingham history, oh, that is some sensitive stuff. Sure. So you do want to vet... The person and the ideas, just so you understand where somebody's going with it, because it's a it's a voluminous topic. You can go in a lot of different directions, and I have a particular way of doing it to try to help people to to look differently and to look with some critical distance or some critical assessment of that history, but also to look with the eyes of faith to be able to see what might this look like to overcome some of the problems that we see persist from the past and how we might be able to move forward with hope. So that's just kind of a theme of my ministry overall is you can ask anybody in my church or anybody who works with me, they'll often say, Colin will often take a very bracing approach to a topic. (laughs) You know, it comes in pretty strong. But then hopefully by the end, he's cast a vision for, uh, you know, for where we're going. And this will sound overly kind of a, I don't know, grandiose, but it's actually a rhetorical strategy that I, I realized later was what Churchill would always do. So he would come in, he'd see a problem, he'd say, guys, it's really bad. I'm going to tell you all the things of why it's bad, but then I'm going to show you exactly what to do to be able to get out of this. 
And then we're going to come together in hope because there's really a bright future ahead. I thought, ah, that works. And preaching is that mm-hmm. way too. Uh, so anyway, that's kind of what the shape of those tours looks like. But it can be, it. you guys have experienced, it can feel like you're wandering in the wilderness there. Like, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> I, these problems are too big. There's no hope yeah, here. Totally. And, um, and that's kind of where I want people to get because... Mm-hmm. That's why I always say in those tours, there's no happy endings. Mm. But that doesn't mean there can never be a happy ending. It just means that way we sort of just choose to forget is not where we need to stay. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's clear, like, even this goes beyond your own personal interest as a historian. I mean, you were a history major right. in your undergrad, um, and you're really passionate and feel that it's important for Christians to know the history of the city that they're in. I imagine that that conviction goes beyond just Birmingham yeah, for you. So so why would you say it's important for Christians to know the history of their locale wherever they are? So one of the things I'm working on right now is a, is a new class for Beeson called Cultural Apologetics, and I'm going to be working some of the Birmingham History Tour into that class because that what I want to focus on there is how to tell the story of your city. And that can adapt to any church in any different city. But the reason to do that is because everyone has sort of an unspoken narrative of what they, of the good life, of what they want to affirm, what they want to deny. Uh, I could say that where where I grew up uh, is a rural area of South Dakota, and that theme was essentially. You stay and invest in the community unless you're too good for us, in which case we just choose to forget about you. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of this sense of we love where we live. So you got a lot of friends back home, <laughs> I'm sensing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it, I, I learned it from my own grandmother. She, mm-hmm. she would really affirm this is the best place in the world to live. It's so wonderful. Mm-hmm. I can't reason why anybody else would want to leave here. And then if you leave, it's you're out. Mm-hmm. And so then I could, I could go to Sioux Falls and I could, you know, a, a city that's been growing constantly for 40 years. And, and I could say slow and steady wins the race, never too high, never too low. Well, that extends to churches. Church cultures take on that form as well. We're not trying to do anything too fancy here. Don't get ahead of yourself, but we want sort of steady, steady growth. And so you can, it, it, you, we are all more shaped by our culture than we want to admit. Right. So it's really important for just regular discipleship. But it's also important for a church to see what is it in the in my city's story that we should affirm? What are the great things? That's why in the Birmingham tour, I come back and I say, we have a story that we can affirm. This is the city that taught the world to march. That's a story we can affirm here. But the narrative of... Oh, look what those people did with this city once they got power. Okay, that's a story too, but that's a story you've got to oppose because there's a lot of other underlying assumptions there. So, yeah, you can apply it anywhere, but I think it's really important for church leaders and ultimately members to uh, to understand that. One question is, how do you think, going off what you were saying, maybe we as the church have been shaped by some stories in Birmingham, you mentioned a few, that we just don't even realize that we've been shaped by? Yeah, well, one way to put this also would be, what are the questions people ask one another in casual conversation? Or another way might be, what's the tallest building in town? Like, there's a lot of ways Mm. that you can approach this. So I was just working through this with my class where, 
Um, I mean, what is the tallest thing in Birmingham? Well, that's Vulcan. Okay, that's what well, I was going to guess. Yeah, right. Just, <laughs> so, that, just so everyone knows. <laughs> so you're working back from that. Like, why would this city? Why would the city put a Vulcan? Like, what does that mean? What are they trying to say there? Okay. Well, this is a city. This is a new South city of progress, of industry, of wealth, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's. I mean, we might take that for granted because you, if you grew up in Birmingham, but let's say you moved from Montgomery or something like that, well, you would mm-hmm. notice a pretty big difference there. But you might not notice if you are born and raised here. So mm-hmm. that would that would be an example. When when you talk with people in casual conversation, I find. Not very often do people have any interest in what I do for work. It usually does not come up. <laughs> they want to know what I do for fun. So this city tends to work to play. Um, that's very different from Chicago, where I lived. It's very different from New York, where I live. Those places work to get ahead. They work to get rich. Birmingham, no matter where you go at the top levels, it's really not about the job they have or the money they make. It's where do you have houses? I mean, especially I live in Mountain Brook, so you can see how that goes. But how many houses do you have? Lake Martin and Highlands or which country clubs do you belong to? Or which football teams do you cheer for? Which is another way of saying, mm-hmm. am I going to see you on Saturdays? Am I going to see you down 280? Am I going to see you, you know, on the interstate? Questions like that. So that's how people kind of feel each other out. So generally speaking especially when you're thinking as churches, Mm -hmm. we have such a strong recreational culture that church, while important, takes a clear back seat on the weekends to leisure, whether that be the lake or the football game or the kids' activities or whatever. That's just assumed. Mm. So I don't know if you guys see that over here, but that's what I see. No, no, not at all. Uh, Everybody here is, uh, we're 100% committed and do not, Embrace these cultural narratives. I, I have a joke anytime it's a holiday weekend when I step up to greet the congregation. I say, Welcome everyone who does not have a lake house to our service. Well, I, I talked with a friend. Here is the remnant. I, yeah, the I, faithful remnant. Or, or doesn't have a friend. Yeah, a friend with a lake house. Exactly. I, I, talked, I talked with a, a friend who's in a sort of a higher income church in Birmingham, and he said that. This summer, it's just people are not at church. And he said it's the people who are at their lake houses and the people who don't want other people to know that they don't have lake houses. So that's why they don't. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. (laughs) So, yeah, they're they're there when you look, but you just have to. Or, or for example, this is a – I think we take this for granted. I think it's generally a positive thing. We have an extreme – we have recreational culture. We have a relational culture. So people want to know where you're from because they basically want to find out which high school you went to because they want to be able to then connect to somebody they knew from that area or Mm. that school. And the school boundaries are really significant in Birmingham, but public school boundaries because of our racial history. So it tells you a lot. When somebody says, I'm from Oak Mountain, or somebody says, I'm from Mountain Brook, or something like that, it means something there. And yeah, you kind of run through your mental Rolodex and say, do you, what year did you, okay, do you know blank? Like, maybe that's just normal in Birmingham. I think it's perfectly fine. I think it's a good thing. That's not the way people act in Chicago anymore. (laughs) Nobody ever asks which high school. But people generally, they want to know which football team you cheer for. They don't necessarily care which college you went to. Which is also interesting. So when you get to Chicago or New York, everybody wants to know which college you went to, because then that is becomes a marker of education and status. Hmm. So. 
one of the things that's interesting to me is you just talk about uh, cultural narratives and how these things shape us is even if there are ones you're mentioning that I haven't thought through before, like I can immediately go, Oh yeah. Yeah. I see that. I see that. Or even like Brad just affirming like, yeah, I totally make a joke about welcome everybody who doesn't (laughs) have a lake house. Like we see that narrative unfolding. I'm curious. Um, obviously you you do the civil rights tour because the narrative of the civil rights does, has had a massive shaping effect on our history here in Birmingham. Do you find that people believe that narrative, the narrative of uh, racial issues and racial history, uh, still plays a shaping effect today in Birmingham? Or do people want to push back and say that is only a narrative of the past and it doesn't still play a shaping effect? Oh, man, what a great question. So I think it depends on your generation. Mm. So what I find is difficult about about churches in Birmingham. And this has actually changed in a generation. So I used to say the deep South is the hardest place to lead a church because you have to deal with four or five generations at once. Whereas in a lot of other parts of the country, the, the, the age groups have segregated from each mm-hmm. other through church plants. As they switched in Birmingham, now we're pretty segregated according to age, mm-hmm. not just race, but also age in our churches. Mm-hmm. But I used to say something like you have to deal in your congregation with an older population that is completely racially unreconstructed. They're unapologetic about overt racism. Now that, by definition, that group is dying off, but that's sort of, I'm, I'm 40, that would be like grandparents. They're, sure. But that's a different narrative when you get to their kids, the boomers who grew up in the 60s uh, with integration. Their attitude is more of, why do we have to keep talking about this? I thought we made progress. Why do we keep? Why would we name a sh- an airport after Fred Shuttlesworth? Why wouldn't we name it after Condoleezza Rice? So they really want to push for a, a post-racial mm. future. Mm. Then you get another generation. Can I ask a question? Yeah, on go that? ahead. Yeah, a complicated question. Why do you think that is? Why do they? Well, it's because of where they fall in the timeline. So mm. my narrative of how Birmingham's white community has dealt with racial issues is fight, flight, forget. So mm. they come in the forget stage. So, and a lot of them were in, they were the only people who were in schools that were racially integrated for a short time in the city. Mm. And that was not a, fun or painful. That was a difficult experience for just about everybody. It didn't work. didn't last. So they just have a tendency to say, no, 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 we've moved on. We've built our new suburbs. We've sent our kids to good schools, and we just don't want to have to think about it anymore. So if you bring up the history, they're like, why do you have to keep going dragging up all that stuff again? Mm-hmm. Okay, now like, you, a, like a civil rights tour, for exactly, instance, that someone right, yeah, might lead so, for churches. What are you right. doing, Colin? <laughs> yeah. So now that's, that's exactly the attitude. But then I find for 20-somethings, 30-somethings, into the 40s, it, it is a very different thing. I actually had somebody ask me the other day, do you think racial issues are still a problem in Birmingham? And I think it was in reference to interracial marriage. And I said, well, in the one sense, of course it's entirely different. There is an you know, multiracial couple on my street in Mountain Brook. That would not have happened decades ago. Okay, so clearly it has changed. I also said, I don't think I know any interracial couple where one or both sides of the family hasn't disowned them, at least for a period of time. So in a lot of the people who are interested in Birmingham history tours are either multi, you know, uh, interracial couples or parents who've adopted 
children of different races mm-hmm. because they're the ones who can't really avoid the problem. <laughs> they live the problem every day. And the stories I hear from them consistently affirm that forms of overt racism are unfortunately alive mm-hmm. and persisting. Mm-hmm. So they, they can't ignore it. They, they know that's still there. Now, then you get to the youngest generations and they come up with a di- totally different expectation, which is that if your leadership, by the way, if you want to see where this is a bigger issue, go to Atlanta right now. Mm-hmm. It's very different in Birmingham, but you can see it beginning to come. If your leadership is not multi-ethnic, then by definition, you're considered suspicious. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, you're, you're considered to be part of an oppressive type culture. Like I said, that's more of an issue in Atlanta that you hear pretty consistently from churches right now. And there are a lot of reasons for that. You're talking like teenagers, early 20s. Teenagers, early 20s. Yeah, Yeah, so essentially that's what they're being taught in their education. So it's just not really okay anymore. So they might walk into a church like mine that is almost exclusively white in a multi-ethnic or mixed-race neighborhood, Mm. and they would see it as a problem, whereas older, even older millennials into Gen X, they wouldn't really see it as a problem. Mm. So that's a shift. Mm-hmm. So it really depends on the generation. I yeah. see it really changing, going all the way down. And insofar as any church, and I'm sure you guys, as this church skews younger as well, like ours, but insofar as you have a church that would have all four of those generations, that is hard because it's not the same narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, you mentioned uh, that, yeah, I mean, obviously this is still narratives and issues that are alive and well within our own city, but it's beyond that too. You mentioned Atlanta and things like that. And and I think it's, it's, it's only been pain, even painfully more obvious over the last right. year, 18 months uh, that this issues of race are uh, alive and well through, not just in the church, just throughout our culture in general in our country, but also all across the evangelical church. And, and, so I guess my question is with the evangelical church still seeming to be divided right. over these issues, like in the wake of the death of uh, the murder of George, George, George Floyd, right. I couldn't say George for some reason right then. You nailed it at the end. Though. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but in the wake of that, or even in controversy surrounding thing like, things like uh, critical race theory and different right. things of that nature, um, like how did the church specifically get here? Uh, to this moment where this is still such a, a hotbed issue that causes so much division in evangelicalism? There are two ways to answer that question, and how somebody answers that question kind of gives away the game. So, there's <laughs> so are, you, are you about to give away the game, Colin? Yeah, so, I mean, that, that's, that's, the, that's, the most, that's the most controversial thing to ask right now, which I don't have yeah. any problem with because I do have a strong view on this. Here's the problem. I see things because of my job behind the scenes that other people don't see. Mm -hmm. So the problem is when I talk about where I'm seeing these things, I often get really, really bad negative pushback from people because I just don't realize they don't know the things that I know. They see somebody writing a book and they think X means X. But I know the author writing the book, and I know the backstory behind the book, and I know the family members of the author, and X doesn't mean X. X actually means Y. Mm. So Mm. that's really, I find that's difficult because the two narratives are, one is the world's gone nuts. It has gone nuts. Everything is about diversity, equity, inclusion, 
White people are inherently evil. Just look what's being taught in schools today. Just look what's being taught in corporate training. Okay, here's the problem with that. I actually agree with a lot of the the concerns that people have about those things. I see it too. I see what, what happens, how everything gets racialized. Everything gets politicized in our culture. The Major League Baseball All-Star Game to the NBA to every class. I mean, I, I see those problems. Mm-hmm. So that's not my that's not my concern. But the narrative that says that happened, then evangelicals, because they just want to be popular, they want to be in with all the movers and shakers and the cultural shapers, they decided to just completely capitulate on the gospel toss all of their values out the window, and even some of the people you used to trust are the very worst. So in order to preserve the church, we must destroy those leaders and their influence so that we can, unless you want the church to become just like your your college or your diversity, equity, inclusion training in the corporation. Okay, so that's the one narrative. Um, that's clearly the dominant narrative right now. Is clearly the most popular narrative. It is the narrative that the Republican Party is running on for the next midterm election. It's the narrative that President Trump ran on for his reelection campaign. It's clearly the dominant one. What I see as the issue is that it starts with the seed of truth, but then it uses that as a kind of bludgeon. I'm mixing my metaphors, but it uses it as a bludgeon to wipe away everything else. Now, here's mm. another way to describe that same situation. Okay, another way to describe that same situation is that for various reasons, especially politics, white evangelicals have neglected to deal with racial problems that have been endemic to their movement, especially in the South, for all of history. Mm-hmm. And never was there a reckoning, never was there confronting that, never was there, we're going to learn on this, learn, learn from this, never was there a meeting with black church leaders to talk through those differences. That never happened until President Trump. And President Trump, for a variety of reasons, threw off a lot of old alliances and alignments. He initiated a revolution in the Republican Party, the biggest revolution in the Republican Party, probably since the civil rights, since 1964, when the parties flipped on racial issues. But if not that, at least going back to Ronald Reagan in 1980. So, So that all of a sudden, all the political alliances got thrown up in the air. And in the, in the midst of that, some white evangelicals began to say, we need to rethink some things because we don't like how this has all turned out. And maybe we need to go back and ask some hard questions mm-hmm. here. And 2018, some of those hard questions come out in events like the MLK 50 conference in Memphis. And the response from politically networked conservative evangelicals was ferocious. Because mm-hmm. the one thing that would destroy the Republican Party is if evangelicals didn't vote for them anymore. Mm. So for the sake of preserving the political dominance of evangelicals in the Republican Party, the backlash was, again, fierce and issues like critical race theory, which until 2020 were virtually unknown, right? unknown in the broader culture, mm-hmm. in the Southern Baptist Convention and in other conservative evangelical, including reformed environments, were 
all of the rage in 2018, and I was being asked constantly about them, and ministries were fragmenting and self-destructing over fights about critical race theory. And then all of a sudden, in 2020, President Trump decides, after watching a Fox News segment with Tucker Carlson, he decides to make it a major plank of his re-election campaign, and all those people who've been working on it since 2018, all of a sudden, they are thrown to the front and center stage, and then they begin in 2021 to publish books that become bestsellers, and all chaos has now been let loose on every single church and Mm. every single ministry across the country. Mm. So pick your narrative there. (laughs) I picked the latter because, I don't know how else to say this, because I lived it, because Mm. I saw it, because I had the conversations. I know the backstories. So, but... At this point, nobody believes me. So, right. I mean, because the, the other narrative is is far more popular and anyway and plausible according to assumptions we've been using for decades. Mm. So, when pastors find themselves caught, like in just the chaos of these competing narratives, and they come to you and they're like, "Colin, how do I shepherd a congregation that you know uh, everybody's not united? Everybody's not even working with the same." information yeah. uh, on racial issues and things yeah. like that. Like, like what do you think faithful shepherding looks like in a moment like this? So in my, in my most discouraging moments, I Th- wonder, those are definitely what we're, yeah. we're after. <laughs> in my most discouraging moments, I think when did evangelicals stop talking about caring about having any interest in Jesus? Mm. Cause I, I mean, I, I, Sometimes I'll get criticized for being overly political, and I say, okay, I need to take that to heart. Let's let's see where this is coming from. And I'll look through a Twitter feed or something like that, and I'll see, oh, you don't talk about anything but politics. You're actually, you don't, you don't talk about Jesus. You don't talk about the gospel. You don't talk about the church. You just talk about politics all the time. So when you told me to shut up about politics, you weren't wanting me to shut up about politics. You just wanted me to shut up about different views. You didn't like my view. Oh, okay. So I see a lot of church leaders members of our churches who don't seem to be very interested in Jesus seem to be really interested in what's happening in the world, but don't seem very interested in Jesus. I get really worried about that. Mm. When I work for a ministry called the gospel coalition, I think, um, what if people don't care about the gospel or the coalition? (laughs) I don't know what to do with that. That's, that's pretty frustrating. Okay. That's my discouraging moments. Um, Hey, but there's no other option. That's all we got. We got Jesus, right? We got Jesus, we got his word. So in season and out of season, Mm. preach the word. So if your quote-unquote Bible-believing conservative members don't really show any interest in Jesus or the word anymore, uh, just keep giving the word. I mean, hope something changes. That's the only thing that can change, the Holy Spirit using Mm. the word, testifying to Christ in the providence of God the Father. That's all all we got. We don't have another weapon. So that's what you do. You just keep you just keep doing that. You just keep calling people back to say, Jesus is our only hope here. Unless we get back to the gospel, there's no chance for us to be able to move forward together. D- does anybody think the world has solutions for how to work through this? Does anybody see any evidence of that? Does anybody think if we just threw our churches behind the Democratic Party or the Republican Party that that would fix the problem? Mm. If we just went after one of the parties and then just chased everybody who disagreed with us out Mm. of the church, then all of a sudden we'd be okay? Mm. 
I mean, come on. We got to think Lord of the Flies here. If we even tried to do that, we would just kill each other over something else. The very problem is the way that we is the way that we strangle each other over things that are not focused on the gospel, that mm-hmm. are not focused on Jesus, that mm-hmm. are not about what unites us together in Christ. And so the crazy thing is, I actually think we need more politics in the church, not less, because clearly this is an area of discipleship where people are confused mm-hmm. at best. But we don't need more partisanship. And what passes for most people as as politics is actually just partisanship. Mm-hmm. It's just whatever TV station or whatever talk radio or whatever podcast or Twitter feeds they follow. So, yeah, so I think there's an agenda. You've got to do political discipleship, but do that in such a way that it's pointing people back to Christ mm-hmm. and to his word as sufficient. And I, I, I keep seeing this all the time. People keep saying, no, no, no. Stop talking about race because the word is sufficient. Stop talking about race because the word is, a, is sufficient. And then I keep seeing, yeah, but then apparently for them, it's not sufficient for all of their efforts to try to stamp out, say, critical race theory. It's very confusing. So you, you have to be aware and attuned to all of these, this doublespeak that is very common to politics, but should not have a place within the church. So I'm not ultimately discouraged because I know that no matter what is happening, our word, the word is, is our only hope. Um, mm. But it is possible that this is a season where even with people who sh- we thought knew better is not in season. Mm-hmm. And that's discouraging. But yeah. if I didn't hear it from almost every single pastor I talked to around the country, then maybe I'd have a different perspective. But generally speaking, each church and each pastor thinks that their situation is unique to them. But then if everybody's unique in the exact same way, you figure it out. (laughs) Well, can I just affirm you and just tell you both, one, that that what you have had to say right there, just, you know, bringing us back to the the gospel, Christ's work, it's it's encouraging, um, first of all. And for me, it also feels (sighs) affirming and freeing Yeah, because I think that I, I often find myself feeling this pressure. Of like, I, I have to have some kind of answer to the questions that I'm being asked that moves beyond Jesus and the gospel and the word, yeah. you know, and, uh, and I just find when I go beyond Jesus and the gospel and the word, I find myself in a land of confusion where I really don't know what the answer is on a whole host of these questions. And so for me, I mean, it just feels very affirming and freeing. Well, and you, you could go back to the civil rights era and somebody could say, well, that was just the problem. They just stuck with Jesus and the word, and then they didn't get into those issues. But that's not what I'm saying at all. Right, I'm saying, right, right. I'm saying they didn't. Yeah. I'm saying they didn't go, because if they had actually read what Jesus said and then did what he told them to do, then they would have, wouldn't have banned black people from coming to their churches. Mm-hmm. So there are right. implications to these things. Right, absolutely. So, but, but the implications have to start with, from the, they have to, emerge from the foundation. Right. And apart from him, apart from Jesus as the foundation, we just don't have any hope. We're just putting a, a slightly spiritual gloss on whatever whatever Clay Travis wants us to think. <laughs> well you mentioned you mentioned uh political discipleship earlier. So are are there any like practical examples uh, you can think of or that you've seen that have worked for churches when it comes to political discipleship? Obviously like knowing your history is important. We've talked about that a lot so far. Um, anything else that comes to mind? Great question. So I, I would I would refer people to the work of my 
co-author on Rediscover Church, Jonathan Lehman. He's got a PhD in, poli- in political theology, mm-hmm. and um, and he's just got really insightful stuff. He's he's both a top level expert on ecclesiology as well as politics. Uh, he and uh, one of my colleagues from the Gospel Coalition have um, a white paper. They published it in Themelios. It's about it's about political discipleship for churches. Um, I'm sure you guys could find a link to Which, it for those who there. don't know, Themelios is... The journal for the Gospel Coalition. It's like, you, like an and, academic journal. Right, and you can get it like in for PDF free, version digitally. for free mm-hmm. online. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so that's easy to track down. But that, that introduces a concept that I find to be very helpful for politics, which is... That there are straight line issues and there are jagged line issues. And so, but our politics, because of the two party system, converges all of them together. So, straight line issues might be something like uh, you might disagree on some aspects of what to do about mothers and children, but killing an unborn child is not okay. Mm-hmm. That's, that's killing somebody who's made in the image of God. That's a straight line issue. Now, there can be debates, again, about the best policies to be able to, to deal with that, but that's a straight line issue. Uh, same thing with, say, same-sex marriage. Okay, the Bible's very clear about sexual ethics. Now, there are a lot of questions about how that plays out politically, sure. okay? But in terms of what somebody as a church or a Christian is going to stand for in terms of their values, that's a straight-line issue. Okay, a more common jag-line issue would be something like, what is the proper policy for Afghanistan? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we can probably all say it's more of a straight-line issue that you— Try not to just allow complete chaos to happen. But at the same time, in terms of the bigger question of should your church be fighting over what America's foreign policy should be in Afghanistan? No. But if some of your members are really passionate about that topic and about working out their faith and applying that, perhaps even in their vocation, that's perfectly fine. And the church can encourage them in that. But they have no right to come into the church and dictate to other members how they must think on that issue. Extend that to corporate tax policy. Extend that to any number of other things in there. So that's one concept that Jonathan does a lot of good work teasing out. And then you can get into that, into voting and sort of strategies and things like that with voting. But even just getting into that would be so much better than where we are right now, which is you can't be a Christian unless you vote for this political right. party. Right. And that's, yeah. that's obviously that works. I mean, that, that, that's, that works for political parties and it works for demagogues masquerading as pastors, mm. but it doesn't work for faithful ministers of the gospel. Mm. Well, Colin, all of that I think is so helpful and encouraging and we could continue this line of the conversation <laughs> for who knows how long. Yeah. Um, but uh, you mentioned your co-author on your new book, Rediscovering Church, and we do want to spend some time talking about that for a little bit. But before we do... Okay, lightning to, round? To, to, yes, to, <laughs> to, to split up these okay. very serious right. conversations, let's do something that's not serious at all. All right. It's the lightning round. Yes, it is. Okay. All of our jingles are made in-house. That's, that's right. courtesy yeah, of J.M. I yeah, love that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> did you just go outside with a microphone anytime between May and July? Yes. Because we had non-stop thunderstorms. Any day the last 90 days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, well, we've got some questions for you here. Some I think you can answer quickly, and then some may take some time. Oh, so, uh, right. yeah. so we'll just go for it. Um, how do you like your eggs? Uh, usually scrambled, sometimes over easy. How do you like your coffee? 
Don't drink coffee. Oh, whoa, whoa. no caffeine. Whoa. No, caffeine. no caffeine at all? Are you no caffeine at all or just no coffee? Oh, man, that's what Mellow Yellow Zero is for. <laughs> I think that the gospel, I, I think the gospel that, coalition just lost so many subscribers. Is that is that your morning drink, the Mellow Yellow Zero? <laughs> Not normally, unless okay, it's okay. a really bad morning. <laughs> no judgment. Okay. I always tell, tell people, I, I don't drink alcohol either, but I say, I've got... Too many other problems in my life to add addictions right. to caffeine <laughs> or alcohol. I do have a caffeine there. addiction for sure. Um, if you could go anywhere in the world to travel, where would you go? I am actually super excited that I get to go next month to Copenhagen and to Amsterdam and to teach. And I'm pretty excited. That's probably where I would go. Or, I mean, I'm, I'm currently tentatively planning a trip with my son next year uh, to normandy and sort of those areas in, in europe he's a big world war ii buff at age six so wow we're pretty i was as you were describing this trip to normandy i'm like is it your son like first grade yeah yeah I'm like, what first grader is excited about normandy well, he's actually going to be leading some tours it's going to be really great I'll, I'll tell you he um we were watching the olympics with with him and he was just like dad i can't watch this volleyball game anymore i cannot watch it i can't watch it What's wrong? It's a good match. It's entertaining. He's like, no, Dad, we're losing. United States to the Germans. <laughs> he just could not handle that. <laughs> I may not have raised him right. Oh, that was hilarious. What are what are the top three books you've read in the last year? Top three books. Oh man, in the last year. Oh know, man, that I doesn't know, work. Know, that throws it off, huh? That doesn't well, work. Do um, Jeffrey, no, no, no. Je- Jeffrey Bilbro's book definitely comes to mind. Um, reading the Times. Re- reading the Times. Yeah. Thank you. It was awesome. Um, for my profession, I, I just, I think a lot of people are confused about what's happening in media. And so a theological inquiry into that, I think, is is really necessary. Uh, next one that comes to mind, I'm really just thinking back to my last... Um, okay, I got, I got this now. Second <laughs> one would be... Uh, a, a, it was Andrew Roberts, right? Is walking Churchill Walking with Destiny, his biography, 1,200-page biography, which I listened to on audiobook. <laughs> this, is the, this is the second time you've mentioned Churchill in this podcast. That's true. I'm, so. that's, that's why. It's because I was re 1,200-page book. <laughs> Just, I'm just yeah, saying. Call me Al Mohler. You're here. you're limited. You're limited to one more one more Churchill <laughs> one reference. reference. I'm actually, you know, I, I just I go through phases with different people, and the the thing about I, I've said this before, but Churchill and Luther are just both such titanic world historical figures that cross so many different things. That just. You, it's never boring, and you could keep reading biographies of them and just not run out of, um, um, yeah, not run out of interest there. I, I think mm. this has been in the last year. So, I'd have to so go back what, to So, what my, was the name of that biography? Walking, yeah, <laughs> walking with destiny. Walking in with destiny. Yes. Got it. So um, that's come highly recommended from a bunch of people before, and now I know why. It just mm. took me a little while to get around to that one. Um, I could go and talk about one of my. Recent heroes, um, uh, that would be Thomas Cromwell from the historical fiction Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel. That's been really good as well, also audiobook. But I think I would rather go with Joseph Henrik. Um, I think that's been the last year, The Weirdest People in the World. And I, I've interviewed him for my Gospel Bound podcast. That one, I, I'll, I'll give you the thesis really quick because it's just, it's wild. So weird means... He coined the, the, the acronym 
Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. So wow. essentially, it's just like like us. Anybody in the United States, anybody <laughs> right. in England, you know, Scandinavia, places like that. So Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And so he says, we actually, sort of that group of people invented the discipline of psychology. But they didn't invent the discipline of psychology. They invented a mirror to themselves and how weird they are historically there. And so he traces that back and he says, they're weird, those things, for two reasons. One, because back in the 6th century in France, the Catholic Church banned Christians from marrying their cousins. Okay, so you stop and you think about that. By the way, he's a chair of human evolutionary biology at Harvard. So here's what he explains. is When the church banned people from marrying their cousins, it revolutionized human relationship because before, the way you related was simply, I do whatever my uncle tells me to do because he's the head of the clan. So I marry, I marry my cousin over here because they tell me to do that. I fight this group because they tell me to do that. You just do whatever to keeps the groups, you know, group solidarity. Well, when you can't marry your cousins anymore, now you force people to intermarry and to relate to each other differently. When you relate to each other differently, there becomes this new space, this cult called the public square. And all of a sudden, you start talking about ideas. And you start talking about ideas and how to organize around ideas, you start inventing things like vocational guilds, universities, hospitals, all that kind of stuff. So he says, if you look today, and the difference between Afghanistan or wherever else in the United States is primarily because they still marry their cousins and we don't. So, so thank you, Catholicism, for your stance on <laughs> cousin marriage. Well, I mean, wow. it, 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 there, there are a lot of positive things that have come from that, but of course also some, sure. some negative things that come. But he, he says the second thing, that's sort of your baseline, and then the second thing is literacy. Mm-hmm. But literacy is primarily an outgrowth of the Protestant Reformation. Right. Started out of Wittenberg with Luther because, hey, now that the Bible is accessible and now it's essential for your faith, now everybody needs to learn to read. So he says, if you look at the countries, you'll get two things, cousin, cousin marriage, and then you look at percentage of Protestants. And that will tell you just about everything you need to know about that culture. So, so Italy is different from Afghanistan, but Italy is not Denmark. So all of a sudden, politics, wealth, and things like that start to make a lot of sense within that grid. So I love big books like that, especially when they overlap with the church. So... You did just scare a lot of people when you <laughs> described the, the the acronym weird there, and the last the the, the D was democratic, well, and you I just said mean, us. Yeah. Like a lot of people are like, wait, wait, because all they can think is the Democratic Party. Well, by which I mean people yeah. who think that there should be popular right, rule. Right, oh, right, right, right. So. Oh, that's that. Did I ruin okay, the lightning uh, round? Are we still no, going? No, this no, is I, going. I, okay. This I was, is great. I was just going to say, ladies and gentlemen, this is what happens when you ask Colin Hansen what he's reading lately. <laughs> All right, back to the lightning round. Okay, yeah, how yeah. many how many books a year do you read? This year's actually been less because I have been um, uh, because I've been writing uh, a book, so that's that's very and launched a couple of them. So that's that's not that's different. Normally, in in another year, it would be in the like hundred to hundred twenty. I quit something like that. Wow. So, but hey, one of the biggest things. Well, first of all, I do say a couple things that, that help to understand that. One of them is that. Audiobooks do make a big difference. Right. And now I can't help but listen to everything on one and a half speed. <laughs> so, yeah. so I try, I turn it down to one and I'm like, what is this? It's like talking through molasses. 
So, so that that's a problem. Um, but so that actually helps you cover a lot of ground. Now, I don't do that for like close study books, but for history, especially that I'm, it's just it's just fun that way. Uh, second, the more you read, the easier it is to read. So you can read a book quickly. Because, especially for my podcast, because I interview authors for the most part, but you read a book quickly because you've already read about 15 other books that are basically saying the same thing. <laughs> so you go through, see if you wonder, like, how does a Don Carson or back in the day J.I. Packer, how do they endorse so many books? I mean, they just read so many books that they can, they can mm-hmm. just look what they, know what they're looking for really quickly. Right. Um, so they're not exactly skimming. But they're not reading word for word either, so mm. I've got to give those caveats because I don't I don't like to disc- I want people to read more. I think sometimes when people hear about somebody who reads a lot, well, first of all, they don't realize it's my job. <laughs> so I do have three little kids, but still, I do this is my job. Um, and then second, yeah, I use audiobooks and some of the stuff I already know. Well, so. Colin, we're in Birmingham, so we're not interested in your job. Do you have any hobbies? <laughs> you, you got any hobbies? Right. Um, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big sports fan, so I love to, if I ever get a chance, I love to play baseball. Um, but yeah, mostly I'm big Kansas City Royals, Kansas City Chiefs fan. And, um, and yeah, go to Alabama games. I mean, I just got back from, from Kansas City, went with a of the group of my friends and my brother and my cousin to go uh, catch a couple of Royals games. So yeah, love baseball. Basically, I mean, if it's uh, if it's sports on TV, I I love to have that on in the background there. Unless it's Alabama or Northwestern football, and then I'm and I'm nervous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's what's the f- your favorite Alabama game that you've attended that you've been to? You know, I was just thinking about this the other day, and. I know you Auburn fans are just gonna jump on me. Here we about go. This, but I think I actually think you'll understand. Alabama has had almost no good games at home. That they yeah, won. They're, they're all blowouts, right? When I mean, they win, yeah. they always blow it's the other domination. team out. Yeah. And when they lose, it's epic. So <laughs> I've seen three people win the Heisman Trophy. In, in Tuscaloosa. Right. I saw Cam Newton win the Heisman Trophy in Tuscaloosa. Yeah. I saw Johnny Manziel win the Heisman. And I saw Joe Burrow win the Heisman yeah. there. So all of those games were epic. <laughs> and I didn't have season tickets for the 2009 season, but I mm. think that is actually the only game anybody can think of from the Saban era that was good at home. And that was the Tennessee Lane Kiffin game. Mm. But it was, I mean, like Alabama played well. They did, did not, but it was just, there was drama there. Right. So I can say, oh, and I, I was also at the kick six game. Okay. So yeah. oh, I've wow. seen amazing one. games and I had a ton of fun at all of those games, except for the LSU game. The, People came in drunk, just threw yeah. up over everything, and I walked out at halftime. LSU that one. fans are wild. Those are Alabama fans, <laughs> oh, but, okay. but but that's totally that's totally I legit. I love it. That's that was totally a trick. Just, <laughs> that may be you the most controversial thing he has said today. You just failed the test, John Mark. No, <laughs> it, it's totally. Test. It was completely embarrassing for all of us. It was like the ticket was so expensive. <laughs> This couple was in their 50s. This, this is and what we're going to get emails up. about. Right. Yeah. Oh, they just showed up totally drunk. They couldn't yeah. They couldn't see their seats before oh, wow. kickoff. How do you spend that kind of money and you can't eat your oh, blind drunk? Oh. So it just, it was bad. We just, it was a totally bad experience. Anyway, so I wouldn't put that in the list. Joe Burrow is very impressive. But I, I mean, the kick six game was just epic at yeah. every, every level. And also, yeah. I completely saw it coming. Right. So I'm gonna. I said. I said out loud to everybody. They're gonna return this kick for a touchdown. I said it to everybody. They all heard me. 
And he did it. I said, that's it. We're out. <laughs> so, yeah, that was wild. Uh, it was I was wild. trying to think, you know, oh, the, the 2014 Iron Bowl was in Tuscaloosa, and that was kind okay. of a crazy game. Was you that the that one game? where all the points were scored yes, back Yes, it was like 55 so to 44. Right after that one. Yes. Yeah, so it was really... So it that was, was kind of a crazy yeah, game. Yeah, so I think Auburn led by like... Oh yeah, a lot at halftime. Oh yeah, also yeah. Was that also the Lane Kiffin fist in the like like yeah like he it, called it he before called the, the touch the play before action pass. yes yes yeah so that was good but again it just, it actually wasn't that dramatic at the end right but that yeah. third right. quarter from Alabama was just a haymaker yeah. in there but yeah you're right that's the only one yeah. in Tuscaloosa that Alabama's won that was really competitive yeah. I, I, I love I, that Alabama wins so much that fans <laughs> now need them to lose to they, just feel something. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm pretty bummed about going back to the non-SEC schedule because it's not fun to go no, to yeah, those non-conference right. No, I agree. Games. We agree on this, yeah. right? I it's think not, we all agree. Well, every it's game last fun. year meant something important, Dude. even if it was against Kentucky or Vanderbilt or whatever. Like yeah. It still yeah. meant something. Well, yeah. Now that we've lost all of our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> this is a yeah. sports okay. podcast. Oh, my word. Okay, I got a question. This should be pretty quick. Okay. What's your favorite restaurant in Birmingham? Oh, oh man, that's a great question. That's one of the best parts about living in Birmingham is how many mm-hmm. different places. I think I switch over time. I'm still very loyal to Saws. I love Saws. Mm. Um, Do you have a location that you prefer? Uh, well, I used to live right near the one in Crestline. Okay, yeah. And so I've been pretty partial to that one, but our church is right next to the one in Avondale, so mm-hmm. that's a good one as well. Um you know, lately, though, the place that has consistently delivered the best meal experience to me has been Real and Rosemary. Oh, really? Homewood. Every time I eat them, I kind of think I should probably be 150 pounds lighter and a girl, um, <laughs> based on the clientele in there. But then I also eat... I, I have eaten yeah. there and been the only dude in the entire place. It seems like they have a target audience. <laughs> they, they, I, and I am not that target audience. But every time I eat my meatballs and corn thing <laughs> you know i just i just think this food tastes real yeah oh. last lightning round question if you could have dinner with anyone throughout history outside of the bible okay. who would it be when no this, this could <laughs> <laughs> this is your last <laughs> reference <laughs> so I do not drink nearly enough to make it worthwhile with Winston Churchill. Right. <laughs> or Luther, probably. <laughs> or Luther yeah, as yeah. well. Um, and, you know, I, I think I have I've been a Civil War buff since I was real young, um, like two, three years old. And so I, it's, it's got to be Lincoln. It's got to I mean, be Lincoln. Growing up in South Dakota, I wonder if you learned about that a little differently than we did. <laughs> Well, it is interesting how I've I've passed along. I've had to really emphasize my my wife's family going back was very deeply involved in the Confederacy in Alabama. Um, in fact, uh, for anybody who actually knows a lot about that, um, Lauren's great great grandfather's life was saved with the Fourth Alabama at little round top at Gettysburg his arm was shot and it was amputated by a U.S. surgeon saved his life and that's why Lauren my wife exists why I have a family so I didn't find that out until years later but it dawned on me at one moment of huh my children are defended are descended from confederates (laughs) and it just it was like okay I'm gonna have to figure out how to handle this and I just you know I've just talked very clearly about the the cause Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i mean my wife said growing up in her school 
that she would have received a failing grade in her history class if she'd said that the Civil War was about slavery. Wow. Like her, her, pref- her teacher would have graded her an F if she'd done that. Wow. So mm-hmm. and I'm not... I mean, everybody has their own different experience in the South. I know and love the South, and it's it's sure, it's variegated. Sure. So I'm not saying that's the South. I'm just right, saying that was right. her experience, and you know that's part of what informs where I'm coming from. I'll give you another example of, of a really good friend of mine, same age, went to a school in 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 a Birmingham, actually a kind of a private school. She was taught that Martin Luther King Jr. was a gay communist, which is why we don't pay any attention to what he said. Wow, that was in 1999. So a lot of those experiences inform where I'm coming from on these. Mm. Or, for example, when my wife says, remember that time when we were driving out uh, west of Birmingham and we got and we ran into a a Klan um, blockade that the Klan had set up, um, you know, like you can't pass through here unless we inspect. I mean, I don't know what they were looking for there, but Lauren's family wasn't wasn't a problem there. But like that was the late 90s. Jeez. Outside of Birmingham, I'm not saying that's the way everything is right. now or even then, but those are real things, and I, I do find it a little bit strange that we almost pretend like that didn't happen, right? Mm. Or it doesn't still happen yeah. there. So we do want to project that we've moved on, but in some ways we haven't. So, but Lincoln, he not only an insightful guy, but gosh, what a great storyteller! Mm-hmm. So that'd be fun talk with him. Well, JM, what a great last question. Yeah, yeah. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, Colin, we don't want to take up too much of your time. I mean, I mean we've already, you've been very generous thus Thank far, you. but we do want to conclude by uh, at least talking about your your book uh, for a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Um, Re- Rediscover Church, uh, the subtitle of which is Why the Body of Christ is Essential. Mm-hmm. Um, so you co-authored this, like you said, with Jonathan Lehman. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about the book and kind of like what led you to write it? Years ago... Uh, one of my friends and colleagues had the idea to produce a really basic membership level ecclesiology. So uh, I don't know everything of how it works in your church, but I bet you have some similar dynamics being a free church that we do non-denominationally that people come from all kinds of backgrounds. So, I mean, just whatever you want to pick. And when they come into our church, our church is often a, a compromise. So you'll see something like, mainline Methodist husband and charismatic wife. So they pick Redeemer. Or Catholic fiancé with Baptist wife, uh, you know, fiancé, which then they pick Redeemer. So you got a lot of people are all over the place. And so we wanted a, a, a way of handing this to members to just say, what is this thing called church? Why are we here? What do we do when we're here? So that was the original need. We then altered it coming out of the pandemic because we said this is the essential time to rediscover church because as I've studied another book I read this year, just I think providentially maybe, was Barbara Tuckman's A Distant Mirror, which is about the Black Plague in the 14th century. And as I was talking with a, a friend and former colleague, Andy Crouch, about this for my Gospel Bound podcast, he said... What we went through in 2020 and are still going through now is the greatest disruption in the Western church since the Black Plague of the 14th century. Mm-hmm. Wow. Our own church, This is these are not official statistics, but it's what I've heard and observed and asked about. 
our own membership is down about 20%. From my eyes, our attendance is down about 33%. And that may bounce back, but of course, with Delta variant and everything like that, I'm not sure if or when that will happen. But if, if that's the case, if that's the situation we're in, then we better rediscover church because that is the biggest challenge we're going to face, hopefully, in our lifetimes, and that many generations have even seen there. So we've got to get back to why does gathering physically together, why is that essential for Christian discipleship? Because a lot of Christians think that it's entirely incidental. And that could be the that could be the person who just hangs out at their lake house every weekend in the summer, mm-hmm. or it could be the person who's the Baptist pastor who says, why don't we just go all in on virtual church? Because look at how many more people we can reach through virtual church. Then we'll do virtual prayer groups. We'll do virtual communion. We'll do virtual everything. It's just so much more efficient that way. So could be either end of that spectrum. So we're just hoping this little book will help call church leaders and church members back to the basics of why we gather together physically in the church. Well, this is awkward because we were planning on turning Shades Valley into just an app. <laughs> that was going to be that was going to be our announcement at the end of the podcast. Right, so right. it's just going to be an app. Really should have done our research on Colin before we brought him in. Should have thought about this, but no, no. Avatar pastors, <laughs> a hologram. It's going to be really awesome. Uh, there is some website out there. Somebody showed me once upon a time. That's like, what's the percentage my job will be replaced by a robot? It's it's, it's fairly low for pastors. It's, it's, it's really low. But, uh, but yeah, so I mean, not to like, you know, give away the whole book and, and yeah. pe- where people don't need to buy it and read it or anything, but like how on a basic level do you answer that question for people when they're like, well, I don't really essential. see, yeah, the, the essential nature of physically gathering? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the first thing I say is that I think the reason that question even comes up is because we've essentially eliminated, we've, we've reduced church to information transfer Mm. through the teaching and then through emotional experience through the music. So Mm. if that's how you conceive of church, then I would agree with you that the physical gathering does not matter because Mm. I can serve up through the gospel coalition website. If I want, I can serve up a far better sermon from someone somewhere, probably than sorry, Jonathan or whoever your local pastor is. I can, um, I mean, yeah. No offense to you. <laughs> I mean, you get Tim Keller piped in every Sunday. Well, right? I mean, why, why not? What are you hi- trying to say, Brad? <laughs> <laughs> why not hire the best actor to go back and do Charles Spurgeon's sermons? Mm. I mean, what would be the problem with that? Or why not? Why not do the same thing with Billy Graham's sermons? There's a lot of ways we could do this if the actual teaching and presence doesn't matter. And mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure Hillsong even through YouTube with a great stereo system in your house that you got set up for your football games, I bet they can do a lot better than your worship band mm-hmm. can too. Mm-hmm. So I'll defend you, JM. <laughs> if that's, no, they can. For sure. If that's church, <laughs> then I agree. But that's not the sacraments. So that's not baptism. That's not the Lord's Supper. Okay. Mm-hmm. Also, that's not community. You can do a kind of community on the internet. But it's an entirely voluntaristic community, meaning you only have to interact insofar as you decide to there. It's not really one that can interrupt you. It's not one that can, that can quote-unquote, catch you when you need help 
one way or another. So one of the ways I put it in a in a recent piece for the for the New York Times was actually from my own experience in church, maybe a month and a half ago, I came in, sat in the back. I'm not sure why I normally sit toward the front, but sitting in the back and there were guys I didn't know there before and just struck up a conversation with them, was able to talk with them about drug addiction, Jimmy Hale mission, where they've been and all that kind of stuff. And I just would not have had that experience otherwise, or then even just, um, not this Sunday, but the Sunday before a friend of mine came up to me and he said, um, um, hey, I just want to know, I've, I've read the Bible cover to cover in the last three months, and I'm really disturbed and even kind of angry and let down by what I've read. Yeah. Would you be willing, could you, Could we get together and talk about that? I was like, that's what I live for. So let's sit like, on the counter right away. Let's sit down. Let's talk and pray this through. Mm. I mean, that those are chance encounters that could happen through the internet, but they're not likely to happen that way. So if community, if the sacraments... If the embodied presence of worship through song, if a particular, I mean, just think, you guys understand this, how hard is it to preach to a camera? Because you don't think of preaching as just giving this out to the world. You think of specific people. You look, you think about their lives. You think about how they're reacting to this, not only your preparation, but also your delivery. That's part of what it means to be sensitive to the Spirit's leading in there. It's not possible without the physical gathering. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, the, like with a lot of things, the problem is not so much because of the innovation, it's because of the assumptions that have led the innovation to be unthinkingly adopted. Mm-hmm. So, that's the basic gist of that, but... I gotta say, it's not particularly popular to tell people that live streaming is not a great option because, understandably, a lot of people it's very convenient for them for some reasons that are not so great. I.e., I'm traveling and this is really easy, but it's also convenient for some people that can't worship for a variety of completely valid reasons. So right. I don't want to be right. overly dogmatic about that, but I do want to say that is I'm glad for that, but that should not be seen in any way, shape, or form as a substitute for actual worship uh, mm-hmm. together why well, the body of Christ is essential yeah and not the body of Christ is just a, just a worship service I don't I want to be clear right but it's right. part of it's that essential gathering that from which other things will emanate mm. well Colin I know that uh the uh, are we allowed to share what the publishers doing yeah yeah I mean it's kind of up to you guys to decide if you're gonna <laughs> request the copies so uh, so yeah so the I mean the publisher uh which who is the publisher? Crosswind. I thought it was. I thought same. It was I mean, they're doing the same thing as what they did with Gentle and Lowly. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Right. Which, if if anybody was here on Sunday, they know that we received a bunch of free copies of Gentle yeah. and Lowly and are giving those away. We'll we'll have them available at our service this upcoming Sunday. Um, but uh, but yeah, so they're doing the same thing with Rediscover Church. They're giving away what four hundred four hundred thousand copies. copies. So we're giving uh, the, the the publisher. This is a nine marks TGC and Crossway book, and they're going to give away a case of twenty of them to up to twenty thousand churches in the United States that want to take a look at them. And so I'm hopeful. I I think TGC is working well when we come across as the best friend of church leaders Mm -hmm. that were there to encourage and support and equip and say, Hey, you face a lot of demands. And church leaders, I I consider that broad talking Bible study leaders, Sunday school teachers and all that sort of stuff, especially these days, it's real hard. 
So we don't see this book as a way of making your life more difficult. We see this as an as an invitation and a discipleship tool to be able to help help lead your church. So hopefully that's what we're doing in this book, but that's where we're coming from. And when we get our 20 free copies, you've promised to sign oh, yeah. all of them. With personalized notes yes, and with everything. Personalized notes. Yes. Yes. Only if people want to take pictures with me with each book, because <laughs> right. that would really stoke my ego. Right. And then post them on the gram so that we right. can oh. get... Well, Colin, I know we're close to time. Uh, other gentlemen, do any of you have any w- one last questions that will only take Colin, you know, thirty seconds to answer? As all of them, that's his average answer time. Yeah, I'm good just luck. I mean, we have a few questions, but I don't know. What do you guys think, Colin? How, how's your time? Give me one more. Okay. One more, Brad. You get the last question Best here. One. Okay, here we go. So, this actually isn't an original question. This is a question that we stole. From an, an interview with Jonathan Lehman. Oh, we want okay. to be real clear about plagiarism here. <laughs> right. All right. This has been a hot topic recently right. in evangelicalism. We want to be above board. So the question that we stole is, what would you say are some of the biggest questions or unknowns that you have in your own mind related to the future of the evangelical church oh, after man. the pandemic? Yeah. I can ask it again if you'd like. Yeah, no, so you know, a real you. small topic. Yeah, a real small topic. Yeah. I was going to say, don't ask me the 2021, how did we get here? <laughs> <laughs> this one's even worse. Um, but Colin, you have a gift at answering that question, just to yeah. affirm you. I mean, the how did we get here question, no matter yeah, what we're true. talking about, you have a gift yeah. at, at explaining that and giving some clarity. Well, the um, so, uh, yeah, this is going to be not bigger than what you wanted. Uh, I will try to keep it really short, but... No, you don't have to. Um, I don't. I think we're very slow to realize what happened in the 90s and early 2000s with the information revolution with the, with the internet. So what we're dealing with in 2020 is the pressures that are, have been increasing and finally reached sort of a, a boiling point for a lot of churches. So essentially... If you think about church before around 2000 or before especially 2007 with the introduction of smartphones with the iPhone, essentially church had a bit of an information advantage Mm. on people and an authority advantage on people. So if you wanted information, of course you could sit down and watch your five o'clock news at five o'clock. Um, or you could read your morning newspaper or even some of your blogs and some of your online newspapers there. But generally, information still came through vetted sources whose responsibility was to build consensus. Now, broader media, that consensus was to be able to sell advertisements to the broadest possible people. But for a church generally, be able to build an institution that was big enough you know, and broad enough to be able to be sustainable. The internet, I don't know when it's going to finally click with us, but the internet just destroyed all of that. It's all gone because the internet has completely inverted the entire relationship of information and authority. So the internet now vests all authority and information in the hands of the individual Mm -hmm. and they don't come to any media source, certainly not an in-person media source saying, pastor, teach me. They come saying, pastor, are you going to affirm me Mm -hmm. in what I've already been told by my favorite podcast by my favorite website, by the social media accounts that I follow on Twitter, by the viral posts that I saw on Facebook, and on and on and on forever. Totally. So that we've 
There's never been a situation like that before. So unless we figure out a way to build durable, physical, countercultural, biblical communities that can help disciple and filter and discern that information deluge, then we're going to see this is just the tip of the iceberg of what we've seen in 2020 because this is not going away. Um, this is the new this new normal. It's not the pandemic that's the new normal. It's the internet. So this hit me a few years ago because we had published something after the measles outbreaks across the country, published something on vaccines, and I thought it was pretty basic. Um, I've ne- the only other thing I've ever seen that's more controversial than vaccines was uh, refugee resettlement. Mm. And what is it we're talking about exactly today? Vaccines right. and refugee resettlement. Right. I've never seen anything more controversial than those two things over the years of, of my writing and publishing. Okay, so on the vaccines, trust me, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go down that road and all that controversy. <laughs> but my point is, I was talking with Joe Carter. He and I have been journalists forever. It feels like, and we said we were just sort of like, did you know that there were whole huge Facebook groups, you know, that were committed to opposing vaccines. Like, did you know that? I was like, I didn't know that. I talked with a friend at UAB. I said, did you know that? Oh yeah. That's why I never talk about vaccines anymore. Like, wow, it's kind of like your job. He's like, no, he can't. It's too dangerous. That's years ago. Okay. Mm. And I stopped and I said, why, how do we know what to trust? I said, well, if I look back at the government, I look back at media, I don't trust this or this or this or this or this. I just went down this long list of all the things I don't trust, all the things Joe doesn't trust. And we said, how do we know we should trust him on this? Because we can't trust him on that. Mm -hmm. So then I realized everybody in this world today with this information revolution has the same choice. Here are your options. One choice is you can choose credentials. You basically say, that's what they say at UAB. That's what, they, that's, what, that's what Fauci says. That's what TV says. That's what I should do. That's what the guys with the PhDs and the women with the white coats, that's what they say we should do. You, you can do that on any issue, climate change, racial, whatever you want to say. I'm going to go with the credentials. Or you can go with the conspiracies. That the credentials are just a way of being, a, you know, this is how it's always worked. The credentialed people just try to keep out, they're just self-interested. They just try to keep out the real voices, mm-hmm. the real people who are telling the truth. And those pe- And then thankfully now, we live in the internet age, so those people can get the truth out there via Facebook and via YouTube. Okay, so those are your two options. Okay, well, there is a, technically speaking, there's a third option. The third option is on every single issue, you can go do all of the research for yourself. And on every single issue, you can try to figure it out. And you are going to be emotionally and even physically exhausted by mm. that. And in the yeah. end, I still don't even know how you, how you reach an answer, how you conclude. Mm. Well, I, I've studied, I studied racial, this is what you're talking about, Jonathan, with all the questions you could ask now. And no, I've done a deep, deep study on critical race theory. And I've, learned, I've gone all to the public. And I've also done a deep dive on Afghanistan's history. And I've also read all of the recent studies on Delta variant and on all of You can't do it. Mm-hmm. Nobody can do it. Nobody's ever had to do that before. So what do you do? Yeah, what do we do? You fall back. <laughs> you, you fall back and you say, it's either the credentials or it's the conspiracy. You just pick one of the sides. 
and that and that and that becomes your worldview mm-hmm. there. Like I said, I the, what we do is that we have to create durable communities centered on Christ, full of trust, that are willing to willing to acknowledge that that is the condition of existence that has been brought to us by the internet. And that if we don't learn to build durable communities that are connected ultimately to God, ultimately to the historic to historic orthodoxy and the patterns of the church, I mean, another way to put this is that both sides, whether it's credentials or conspiracy, both sides are progressive. Both sides are essentially cut off from history. Well, I'm a big history guy, so I believe that even though we don't go back in Birmingham history and learn all those lessons, we still need to be fundamentally oriented toward Essentially, we don't just throw away what the past has done. We actually learn to adopt as much as we possibly can from the past because essentially that's like one big test of humanity. How's that work? Well, we've had all this history to learn how these things work, so we should be very reluctant to throw something out. That's what makes me a conservative in that sense. I'm not a conservative in the political sense today. I'm a conservative in that sense, local, historical. Um, So that's the way forward in person, Bodies committed to God and to one another, body of Christ committed to God and one another, historically oriented, deferential toward you know toward the patterns of existence. If you hear some Wendell Berry coming out in me, that's on purpose. Mm-hmm. That's the only way through. But I'm telling you, I, I'm at the epicenter. It feels like with all the information stuff because of my job, and I, I can't really fight what Facebook is doing. I can't fight what Google is doing. They have all the power. I, I they, they let me play in their oceans, but they can kick me out whenever they want, just like they can kick you out. So there has to be some other way to be able to... So my hope is, okay, use the internet, try to get good resources into the hands of leaders to be able to lead their communities, because that's what's going to have to happen. So I don't know if, if you guys see that, if that has any explanatory power, but that's like the big message I'm trying to convey to people is like, you think the problems are Afghanistan and politics and all that and pandemic. That's not the stuff I'm worried about. The stuff I'm worried about is, is it's like the printing press was invented 20 years ago and we're still there scribbling mm-hmm. on parchments, you know, or codices. We just have not, have not come to realize how, this is going to continue to upend all spheres of life. I mean, from especially, I mean, education would be one easy way to look there, but even look at workplaces, how much last year just changed with workplaces because of what was possible, the internet. Why are these lockdowns even considered okay? Because of the internet, because the thought is, well, gosh, if you've got internet and delivery, which is an internet thing, then you don't need people. You can just stay locked down forever. That's what I mean. That's a rabbit hole for me. Hmm. All opinions expressed by Colin <laughs> are not uh, necessarily uh, a representative of Shades Midweek. No. And- <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> it's so helpful. It's so oh. much to think Colin, would you give everybody your email address? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I have to no. give my physical address. No. Throw. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, it's not... Yeah, I'm not... I, I think... People think it's about picking sides. No, 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 no. Mm, this is about yeah. digging underneath the whole thing there. That's where we need to be focused on. This is not a red versus blue or yeah, smart yeah. versus dumb or whatever. This is this is more fundamental. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, maybe to end on a positive note, I know we said one more question. I, I think say, this will be this, quick. This, this has been the encouraging. You've, you've talked. It is encouraging because it means that your church is God's plan. Right. To to continue to try to give a witness in this world. That's yeah, encouraging. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, yeah. you've talked about building durable communities. I know there's yeah. a lot of ways that we can do that. What would be one way that you would suggest that churches in Birmingham can build a durable community that can withstand the storm of everything that you just said? Well, I think there's a, a couple things to do. One of them is simply you have to have rhythms of life that put you into contact with other people, whether that be your weekly worship, of course, mm. whether that's a small group or something like that. But even beyond that, there has to be something else that brings you into regular unplanned contact with other, with, with, with that community. If it's always just a, that's the thing we do when we get around to driving a long way to do that. Like you just can't maintain friendships or right. things like that. That's not, that's not durable by definition. I would also say that I'm all for discerning use of media, but most people don't really have the perspective to be able to be particularly discerning about it. But I would definitely say I, I it's funny compared to the boomer generation when they, when smartphones came around with their kids, I think they thought, well, "This is great. I can I can track what they're doing. I know where they are. I can call them. I can text them. I can coordinate with them. It's gonna be so convenient." But they didn't have the experience to know all the downsides that came from that. Uh, I would say media, especially television, smartphones, and things like that got to create patterns of life. I'm not going to be dogmatic about what to do and exactly not to do, but you have to have patterns of life that value, I think, books and people. Mm-hmm. Got to value books and people and service. I mean, just as an extension of people. But you have, if, you're, if your home and your church is characterized by those two things, I think you got a fighting chance. I think you got more than a fighting chance. you got the spirit on your side. So mm-hmm. you got books, you got people. If you have a community like that, that's great. If you have a community that's, now this is where I'm actually going to be controversial. None of the rest of us controversial. If you got a community that's doing <laughs> it's about tra- time, Colin. If you if you got a community that's travel ball all the time, and so they're never together, things like that. It's only controversial in certain geographical regions, <laughs> and we just happen to be in one. Yeah, of exactly. Them. Yeah, exactly. So, but I mean, mm. it, that's that's if if you you can't have a durable community if you're gone all the time or yeah. you're moving all the time. Mm-hmm. Like you can have or, or even. Uh, Working on this course, uh, I was looking back on something. This is this is pretty simple. I, I got this from from Jen Wilk, and she said, "Why do families feel so, feel so busy today? They feel so busy today because our economy has spawned endless people who will sell their services to you and your family by convincing you that unless you do this activity, you will not live a fulfilling life." That's mm-hmm. another way of saying two generations ago, houses were smaller. Vacations were smaller, all sorts of things were smaller. I mean, just they didn't cost as much money. And so, when families were saying, "How are we going to live on this budget? You know, how do we handle this if both of us need to work?" Things like that. Well, those weren't problems two generations ago. Now, there's it's real complicated, but one of the reasons that wasn't as difficult two generations ago was because expectations were different for people. Well, if you expect to have four weeks of vacation away from your city, and you expect to be able to have a 4,000 square foot house, and you expect all this, well, 
yeah, you're going to have to make a lot of other decisions there that probably are not going to lead to durable Christian community. Mm. So that's, that's kind of what I mean. I, sometimes yeah. I think in some, we over-spiritualize some of the challenges that we face. Hmm. And it's, it's, it's more practical wisdom is what we need with historical context. And that is sort of like what you offer up to the Lord and trust him to be able to use. Um, so that's, I mean, so I'm, I'm, I'm actually completely hopeful because the message in the end is you have all the resources you need in your church and your family to be able to be okay. I'm guaranteeing like an ultimate sense, like nothing will go wrong. I just mean you have the tools. You just need to be cognizant to use them. That's all. Yeah. That's so good. It's yep. so good. Well, Colin, we, we thank you so much just for giving us your time and being so generous with it. And uh, we encourage Shades to check out the book, Rediscover Church. Yes. Um, and hopefully we'll get 20 free copies of it. <laughs> um, you know, the, you, you can get that autographed and, and personal picture. <laughs> and the with, photo. With, and the That's photo. Right. And all of those things. And Colin, is this, is this the time when we're supposed to announce that you're a new permanent host on Shades <laughs> Midnight? <laughs> Is that? I got nothing doing. else to do. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I started two podcasts during the pandemic, so I probably right. like everybody <laughs> I mean, else. It literally, it was like double or triple or something like that. The number of podcasts you couldn't find a mic. Yeah, oh. yeah. Well, anyway, thank you seriously yes. for for coming in. So good. Well, this has been another episode of Shades Midweek. You can email us at midweek at shadesvalley.org. And we hope you've enjoyed this special episode with guest Colin Hansen. We will see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>